thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and good morning. My name is Peter Dean. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Study Centre. And it's my great privilege this morning to welcome Senator the Honourable Simon Birmingham, the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and Leader of the Opposition in the Senate. Simon has served as a Liberal Party Senator for South Australia since May 2007. And under the Morrison government, Simon was appointed to the position of Minister for Finance and Leader of the Government in the Senate and serving as Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment. Prior to which, he served as the Minister for Education and Training, Assistant Minister in the Education Portfolio and before that as Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for the Environment and Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for the Murray-Darling Basin and the Environment. I'd like to invite the Senator to come to the stage and make an address, and thereafter we'll have a fireside chat. Senator. Well, thanks very much, Peter, for that introduction to Mike and the team from the US Studies Centre. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here with you today to a distinguished former Labor leader and WA Governor Kim Beasley, uh, other distinguished guests in the room, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, a delight to be able to be with you all at this very important and timely dialogue. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's face it. The world has rarely been a stable place. If it was, we would still be cave dwellers and hunter-gatherers. Today, we're in a time of a growing number of regional wars and facing the threat of greater conflict. We're also in a time of destructive weather events, of predicted increasing frequency, scale and impact. And we're in a time of technology, disrupting not only how we communicate, but rivaling and potentially even influencing how we think or act. It is easy to hit the panic button but as a good churchgoer might say, and I'm not counting myself as one of those by any means, let us give thanks. Hans Rosling's thought-provoking book, Factfulness, gives proof to the facts that across the world, ever-increasing numbers of people continue to live longer, healthier, and richer lives. The trend lines on the core measures of human existence remain overwhelmingly positive. Put simply, humankind has never had it so good, yet faced so many simultaneous threats. As leaders, we are presented with the challenge that our obligation is to pass on a better future to the next generation. Unquestionably, that should still be our goal. But first, we must preserve the gains we've made. To preserve these gains may require us all to return to some first principles. What are the good parts of human development that have enabled us to go from cave dwellers to consumers, from hunters to carers, and from gatherers to innovators? And we need to be willing to defend, uphold, and advance these principles that have enabled these achievements. Now, despite its current ineffectiveness as an entity, we can find sound principles in the United Nations Charter which acknowledges the dignity and worth of the human person in the equal rights of men and women and of nations, large and small. It further urges the promotion of social progress and better standards of life 
in larger freedom to live together in peace with one another as good neighbours, and that armed force shall be used shall not be used save for in the common interest. The countries that have led the modern gains in human advancement, whilst most closely adhering to these principles in the UN Charter, overwhelmingly share two systemic traits, liberal democracy and market economy. These are the systems that saw nations get healthier and richer faster. Where at least some of these elements have been copied by others, such as even by China's economic opening and reform commenced by Deng Xiaoping in the 70s, they too have become healthier and richer. Each of the systems of liberal democracy and market economy, though, are under some threat, in some part from within, in large part from glo growing global disorder of autocrats and dictators. Aspects of liberal democracies and of market economies may also be threatened by how we even act in preservation of one or the other of these systems. To what extent can we successfully defend the sovereignty and role of liberal democracies in a world of open trading market economies? Or to what extent will we maintain comparative advantages in innovation if we restrict the openness of market economies in the name of defending liberal democracies? Do we decouple or de-risk? Do we onshore or diversify supply chains? Do we respond to growing militarisation with growing militarisation? How do we make diplomacy work to prevent conflict, to uphold the ideals of the UN Charter and to enable all nations to cooperate in addressing global challenges of climate change or optimal use of pervasive new technologies like artificial intelligence. There are many questions that nations like ours and our governments must answer. In recent months, the world's hotspots have tended to be as far away as Australia has used to them being throughout most of our history. Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Serbia, Kosovo, coups across Northern Africa. But the big spot of the future remains the Indo-Pacific, right on Australia's doorstep. The increasing cooperation and interconnectedness of those driving destabilisation around the world points to greater risks than even the heightened commentary of recent years has envisaged. Now we, in this forum, Australia and the United States, must make every aspect of our alliance as effective as possible if we are to prevail against these challenges. From an Australian standpoint, there are three key roles we can and should play. First, we must make a meaningful contribution to deterrence by building the combined strength of our alliance through our defence investment and cooperation. Second, we must be, Australia, an honest and principled interlocutor in our international engagement, especially with the major powers. And third, we must advance diverse partnerships wherever they advance the cause of peace, stability and prosperity. On deterrence, Australia is talking the talk and has sketched out the architecture, but we must, but we run the risk, we run the risk of not walking the walk.
The previous coalition government showed great foresight when, prior to the 2013 election, it promised to restore defence spending from a woeful 1.56 per cent of GDP to at least 2 per cent of GDP. Critically, we delivered on this promise. Notwithstanding other spending pressures, efforts to balance the budget pre-COVID, or of course the pressures of COVID itself. Without this, Australia would not have been a credible partner for AUKUS, nor would the architectural sketches of our future defence posture be considered viable. Now, since the election of Labor, defence spending, though, has gone backwards, not forwards. The Defence Strategic Review is strong in strategy and welcome, but a subsequent quagmire of further reviews is delivering delay rather than hard capability. China's People's Liberation Army is already the world's largest armed force and continues to advance its capabilities, including in nuclear weapons. The US-Australia alliance needs Australia to demonstrate that we can efficiently and effectively build currently planned surface ships while increasing their lethality where warranted. We must equally make the planned guided weapons enterprise a reality, enhancing our long-range capabilities. Equally, we should be looking for and expecting the United States to open up defence trade between our nations as comprehensively and quickly as possible. The pillars of AUKUS can best be achieved by enabling the seamless flow, the seamless and secure flow of intellectual property, skilled people and hardware between and within our countries. These initiatives go not only to enhancing the defence capability of our militaries, but also lifting up the defence industrial capability such that we may more effectively respond to future uncertainties. On Australia's role as an honest and principled interlocutor, this requires us to demonstrate consistency in our principles and courage of our convictions. China's attempts at economic coercion against Australia should be openly called out as such. And it is to the enduring credit of Australian industry and business that we withstood, with minimal economic impact, the barrage of trade sanctions applied directly and indirectly against us. That these sanctions are eventually being removed without acquiescence to the infamous list of 14 Chinese demands is a fact noted around the world. However, the removal by China of their sanctions against us should not be seen as a cause for gratitude, but instead simply as adherence to the agreed terms of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. It is the bare minimum that we should be expecting of one another. Similarly, Australia cannot tolerate the indefinite or arbitrary detention of Australian citizens, and we should expect transparency and justice for Dr Young Hun Jen, including his return home to Australia. We should also expect adherence to other international rules that underpin stability and trade in our region, such as the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and we should speak strongly against breaches of them. China's refusal to respect previous UNCLOS rulings and their increasingly aggressive posture towards the Philippines or others exercising their rights to freedom of navigation and overflight risks miscalculation an escalation that is against all of our interests. 
The continuing scale of PRC military operations near Taiwan presents similar risks and warrant similar calls for their cessation. Equally, the strengthening of relations between China and Russia that has under, been undertaken throughout the time of Russia's illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine has demonstrated a willful disregard for the very principle of sovereignty which China so often asks others to respect. That China's No Limits partnership with Russia has bloomed as the rogue states of Iran and North Korea have simultaneously increased their military support for Russia speaks to the gravity of the security challenge we could face and must work to avert. Averting the worst threats requires as much strength and unity as possible. Ukraine remains a test for the West. If the US Congress is to stand as the beacon of liberty described by new House Speaker Mike Johnson this week, then the House should act decisively to continue defending liberty in Ukraine. We need the US to be the leader of the free world, not just the biggest of the free world. And in return, we must also all be willing to do our fair share of the heavy lifting too. As partners across the democratic world with a commitment to market economies, we must engage cooperatively to strengthen those economies, especially where they are threatened by market distorting actions or intellectual property theft. But a US and EU that undercut each other and their free market allies through excessive subsidies or fail to seize opportunities to deepen free trade between our market economies does nothing to make the sum of us stronger. In contrast, if current US and EU negotiations can secure a practical and principled approach in sectors such as steel and aluminium, which achieves concomitant economic security, national security and climate change objectives, it could present a new model true to shared principles and interests. How to maximise both economic security and national security will increasingly require these types of integrated policies and strategies. The step up in diplomatic engagement by the Biden administration has been extremely welcome, especially within the Indo-Pacific. For greatest impact, this engagement needs to meet the needs of the region, which requires the Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity to deliver real growth in US trade and investment within the region. I, for one, would continue to prefer the US to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. No matter how forlorn a hope that may be, in this era of continuous disruption, it is worth repeating the tangible benefits that would bring to our shared interests. The CPTPP is just one of the diverse network of partnerships that Australia has built, must sustain and extend. By necessity, it must be diverse, both in type, economic, security, regionally based, values based, and in geography, albeit with a natural focus to our region. The previous coalition government delivered this. In the security realm, we drove the Quad to a leaders level dialogue, established AUKUS and deepened traditional partnerships such as with the US, UK or Japan. Economically, the growth in our region, in our network of trade agreements is unrivalled. From North Asian nations through RCEP and CPTPP, across to India and the United Kingdom. Breakthroughs such as our digital economy agreement with Singapore, 
provide models for increased cooperation in the new economy too. Regionally, we ensured Australia was the first country to sign a comprehensive strategic partnership with ASEAN and built the Pacific step up to deepen ties across Pacific Island Forum member nations. So while we must stand up for our interests as a liberal democracy and market economy, this cannot limit our engagement with the world. Our rallying call to all nations beyond the major strategic competitors must centre on the unifying interests of respect for sovereignty, a world where the strong don't dominate smaller or mid-sized nations or economies, not through military invasion, nor through economic coercion, nor through a rewriting of global rules to advantage one over another. Whether a member of the Global South or of the OECD, these should be shared interests, especially among mid and small sized nations, which Australia can and should prosecute. Ladies and gentlemen, in our world of constant disruption, with its amazing successes for humankind, but significant modern day threats, we should meet the challenges head on, both with realism as to the threats and optimism, knowing that our human capabilities have brought us a long way together already. Can I thank you once again for the opportunity to be with you today, for the work that the USSC does in provoking thought about our alliance and the leadership role our two nations can play across the Indo-Pacific and around the world. I look forward to the opportunity to engaging in this fireside chat, minus the fire. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Senator, for that. Um, Mike, please take note next time we need a fire for the fireside chat. <laughs> um, great broad-ranging speech. I particularly love any speech that uses the phrase forlorn hope. Um, and I think we all, we can all look forward to hopefully uh, a strategic surprise like your government pulled off with AUKUS, which would be bringing the United States back into TPP, um, as, as much as that might be a forlorn hope. Um, in your speech, you're really broad-ranging about liberal democracy, about market economics, about innovation. You mentioned the DSR, you mentioned deterrence. And I also want to draw on the fact that you were previously Minister for Education and Training. And one of the things that pulls all of those things together is AUKUS. And I'm thinking here particularly Pillar 2 of AUKUS. So Pillar 1, we all have spoken, I think, ad nauseum about submarines. But Pillar 2, on that innovation piece that you got to particular, or on those areas of hypersonics, of research and development, of cyber, um, of quantum, et cetera, et cetera, I think are really important. So I want to get your sense of what do you think in terms of that second pillar of AUKUS, the real opportunities are for Australian research and development, for the Australian defence industry, and for sort of collaboration across that, that realm in relation to Pillar 2? Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Peter. And I think, I mean, firstly, the two are actually deeply related for particularly an Australian perspective. To step up and meet the challenge uh, of building nuclear-powered submarines requires the type of advancement in our industrial capability, as well as capacities around skills, training and research and development that aligns very much with where we equally want to see that occur in terms of the pillar two realms, uh, be it across uh, artificial intelligence or the range of other prospects that can be pursued. And it's where 
The point that I made in the speech about our expectations for the US is essential to make that clear as to how we operationalise AUKUS for export, trade, industry, hardware, and how that flows. If we end up in a situation where piecemeal liberation occurs, uh, or piecemeal liberalisation occurs uh, in terms of the flow of goods, the trade in exports, the flow of people, then we won't be able to maximise those benefits. And particularly, you know, one of the real challenges there, I think, is yes, a lot of focus around how ITARs are changed and how that relates to particular export controls. But we also need to look deeply at that movement of people and the integration there that will be so essential uh, for our universities and our research institutions being at the cutting edge of breakthroughs in these technologies. And, uh, and that is uh, what will continue to give us the edge. We have the edge. Uh, China may have the largest military in the world, but nobody denies the US continuing to have the most capable military in the world. And that's because of the technological edge and sophistication that exists there. And keeping that within the alliance is critical. And Australia wants to make sure we can play a role in that. So, so on that, um, so one of the great things I like about AUKUS as a, as a real defence boffin and nerd, it's brought two things really to the fore. It's made much more public knowledge about what snorting is when it comes to submarines <laughs> and conventional submarines and why that's not as good as a nuclear powered submarine. But it also has brought ITAR, not, I wouldn't say into a household phrase yet, but certainly amongst the broader foreign policy and defence community, people are much more interested in ITARG regulations. And that was a key feature, obviously, of the PM's recent trip mm. to Washington. Can I get your take on what are your thoughts of how you think the PM's trip went? Do you, do you think it's really pushing that agenda forward that you were talking about? And I suppose where, where you think that whole ITAR debate within the US political system sits? Look, I, I was on the whole encouraged in the sense the trip occurred at what was obviously in congressional terms an awkward time, uh, to put it politely. Uh, but nonetheless, it did seem as if the opportunities were seized to try to push hard uh, in terms of getting real progress. And in the meetings and engagements I've had with Ambassador Rudd, uh, it's been pretty clear that he has ambition for the scale of what needs to pass through the Congress. Uh, and so if that is being relayed comprehensively into the US system, then really it does fall back onto the US as to how they, and the Congress in particular, see the scope and role of AUKUS. And if it's a narrow scope, then that is going to be to the detriment of all of us because the trust that exists in this relationship is unparalleled already. Now, there are responsibilities for Australia in terms of making sure that as we want as seamless as possible a flow of intellectual property, uh, of exports and trade, of people and personnel, of technology and hardware, that also has to be as secure as possible. So there's the onus on us to make sure that the US system has confidence in our security. But if we can give that confidence, then there should be no barriers at all to the US providing a fully open exchange across all of those platforms. Um, 
Just to stay on the, uh, the PM for, for a moment, uh, he's racking up the frequent flyer miles at the moment, although I'm not sure the RAAF actually hands out frequent flyer cards. <laughs> um, he's off to China um, later this week. Um, you've previously stated, we've now seen many discussions happen between the new Albanese government and China, and now is a time when we hope to see outcomes from that dialogue and critical outcomes that Australians would want to see. So can I get your take on, before he goes, what would success look like for you? What, do, what, what would really you think, see, would advance Australia's national interest in the bilateral relationship with China from this visit? But credit where it's due, stabilisation has seen some successes to date in terms of the removal of some of the trade sanctions and, of course, the return to Australia of Chung Lei, which is incredibly welcome. The point I made in the remarks is an important one, though. We shouldn't be showing enormous gratitude for the removal of trade sanctions that should never have been imposed in the first place. Uh, we shouldn't be thankful that uh, the economic coercion is coming to an end. Uh, we obviously should expect that it ends and that it ends faster. We are already engaged in a trade-off of sorts with China over these areas of trade sanctions. The review into Bali was only initiated on the precondition that we suspended our WTO challenge and only happened after the initial findings of the WTO had been provided to both parties. Lo and behold, the same approach is applying in relation to wine. The review into wine has only been agreed to by China on the agreement and proviso that we suspend those WTO actions and after both parties had received the initial findings. What does anybody think those findings show? Clearly, that China is in breach of WTO rules, in breach of the free trade agreement, uh, and they don't want the embarrassment of the independent umpire making clear those findings. Now, it's still in Australia's economic interests and those of our businesses, and as a South Australian, I in particular want to see the tariffs on wine lifted. So it's still in our interest to strike that agreement because the WTO process could go on for years, if not indefinitely. And so getting an outcome is better than no outcome at all in terms of lifting them. But we should equally be clear, and the PM should be clear, that he expects to see those tariffs lifted and other sanctions removed, and that a five-month wait is not acceptable. We should be clear in relation to Dr Young Hinjun, and we see uh, from the release today by his family of information the harsh conditions he's in. Let's remember this is an indefinite detention. His sentencing hearing continues to be delayed and has been again until at least January next year. And without transparency around the nature of the charges that have been laid against him, we can but call it an arbitrary detention. And so Australia needs to maintain a strong stand against that type of arbitrary and indefinite detention of an Australian citizen and expect the release there. But of course, there are beyond those challenges in the bilateral relationship, the need to try to pursue cooperation where we can, particularly in areas of tackling climate change, uh, where if China doesn't act, uh, then the rest of the world uh, sees real challenges that flow to all of us. But also we need to front up to the regional and global challenges that should be addressed in a forthright way with China. And so, the PM in heading to Beijing should be expecting to have a challenging, if not difficult meeting 
on the bilateral grievances that Australia continues to have, on the regional challenges we continue to face, and most recently those actions involving Chinese interceptions uh, of Philippines uh, vessels do present not only a real risk in terms of escalation, but are a clear breach of previous UNCLOS findings in relation to rights in the South China Sea. And the PM needs to be forthright and upfront about addressing those types of challenges and grievances. Australia's own head of ASIO recently highlighted the challenges in relation uh, to continued cyber interference, theft of intellectual property, and again, forthright identification of those problems and our expectations on China need to form part of uh, the PM's agenda, as well as the expectations Australia would have in a values sense uh, to be raising issues around, uh, of course, human rights violations and, and the traditional concerns that we would have that have only continued to be challenged over time in regions like Xinjiang and Tibet. Yes, well, thank you very much, uh, Senator. It's been a fantastic and very broad-ranging coverage of really the key issues that we're facing in the Indo-Pacific. So can you please join me in thanking Senator Birmingham? Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everyone.